Yo, 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 what's good, everybody? Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Isaiah Kid Podcast, the IKP. Welcome back. Um, so I think this, this is actually episode 270. Episode 270 of the Isaiah Kid Podcast, 270 episodes in. Um, this is my second episode of the week. You guys, since basically since the start of begin since the beginning of the football season, I haven't been able to give you guys two episodes like I usually do per week. It's usually just been one week, uh, one episode per week. Uh, last week I gave you guys some bonus content and so forth, but I'm actually coming with a full second episode for this week. Um, in just anticipation for the conference championship games coming up this weekend, and of course I I didn't want to do it by myself. I had to bring on a familiar face, a familiar voice. Uh, like I always tell you guys, when he comes on, I love his intake. I love his uh, his takes, his insight on the game, uh, whether it's basketball or football. Uh, obviously, shining emerging star at PFF, Pro Football Focus. I uh, have and also host of the independent Intel podcast, Kambui Bumani. How you doing, Kambui? Man, I'm doing good. I'm doing good, Zay. Um, great to always be on your platform and talk football yeah. or basketball. And I know today we're going to dive into the football topics and it's a lot going on. So can't wait to get into it and go in depth about it. Yes. Greatly appreciate you having me on uh, or having you on today, uh, taking time out of your day. So, like I said, we can uh, obviously we're going to we're going to preview these matchups coming up this weekend. But. Uh, I think it would be remiss of me because these the, the the last week's games in the divisional round were just so thrilling and so good. Uh, and one, I, you know, my listeners kind of get they they kind of get where I where I stand on a lot of on on every game this past weekend. But I I have a new development, and I think it's interesting. And I really looked, I really dig deep into it. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like. The three easiest divisions in football, or the three weakest divisions in football, I would say, is the AFC South, the NFC North, and the NFC East. And obviously the Titans were one seed, the Packers were one seed, and the Cowboys, they weren't a one seed, but they they were one of the more dominant teams throughout the year with finishing with 12 wins. And all of those teams were one-and-done playoff teams. And I'm looking at the remaining teams in the postseason. I'm looking at uh, Kansas City, who plays in a tough AFC West. Those teams are getting better out West. I'm looking at, obviously, the NFC West. They have two teams that's left remaining and representing the NFC. And then we got the Cincinnati Bengals, um, more of a Cinderella story, but a really nice young core. But they play in a very difficult and physical and grimy AFC North. And I was thinking to myself, if you're one of those teams like Tennessee, Green Bay, Dallas, who plays in, let's just call it what it is, a weak division, a lot of times you find yourself coasting and winning these games by comfortable margins. But situational, and we know how big situational football is in the postseason, situationally, you may not be as good as the 49ers who – over the past nine weeks or so, have 
essentially been playing playoff games, must-win games, and they've been really good situationally. Same thing with Kansas City. They play in a lot of close games. They're really good situationally. Do you think there's some type – I think there's some type of correlation there where I'm looking at those three teams that I named, the Packers, Cowboys, Titans, where they firmly controlled and coasted through the regular season, especially with their dominance with their within their division – but I would say that they lack situational football, um, and that's what came back, honestly, to bite them in their playoff losses. Um, I've heard this narrative before the past few days, and I think it's fair for Dallas because their division is horrible. And late in the year, when he started to play against tougher competition, they started to unravel a little bit, and a lot of that had to do with Dak coming back from his um, you know, lower leg injury, and he wasn't, <clears throat> excuse me, the most confident in, you know, how he felt throwing the football. Ezekiel Elliott was slightly losing a step. I thought offensively their game plan was a little bit inconsistent. Really thought they should feature Tony Pollard more, involve the tight ends more, feature C.D. Lamb. So I think Dallas showed signs late in the season that they were kind of falling apart at the seams. But we all expected when they played against the Niners, at home for them to at least get that, not everybody, but to at least find a way to win. But it's something to say for Dallas. Now, Green Bay and Tennessee played well enough to win in the playoffs. They just did. I thought both teams' defenses set the tone at the line of scrimmage. I thought they were able to provide consistent levels of pressure. They were able to make plays on the football when the ball was in the air. Flack to say, but at least like Tennessee, nine sacks. You got to be able to win that football game against Absolutely. the Bengals. They were able to do so. Green Bay, uh, Defensively, I thought set the tone in the first half, held the Niners to zero points. They even got a turnover in the red zone. Yep. And then the second half, they held it as long as they could, but Green Bay's offense couldn't manufacture any points. And that was the theme there. Tennessee and Green Bay offensively didn't put up the performances that we saw late in the year. Rodgers, for the past two months, was on an MVP tear. Tannehill single-handedly helped the Titans get the number one seed with his phenomenal performance against the Texans to end the year. So we've seen their quarterbacks throughout the year in the regular season play well, and they just didn't deliver in the postseason. So Tennessee and Green Bay just didn't have complete games. I think uh, for Green Bay, the special teams didn't show up, and their offense faded away after the first drive. For Tennessee, Ryan Tannehill sold the game. I thought, uh, you know, their coach didn't do a good job for able in terms of playing through the run instead he kept putting it in Tannehill's hands to make plays. So I think, you know, Green Bay and Tennessee just picked a bad day to not have a good game. And I don't think it has anything to do with their division being weak and they weren't mentally tough for moments like this because Tennessee went on this long winning streak where they beat the Chiefs, they beat the Patriots, um, they beat the Bills. So we saw what they were able to do against elite competition in the regular season, Green Bay as well. Yeah, they ran through their division, but after that Saints loss early in the year, they pretty much were dominant. And if they did lose, were right there in the end. So I think that narrative is good for Dallas because historically they haven't won consistently in the past decade or so, and their division has not been a very challenging entity to help bring the best out of them. And I also think a lot of it has to do with, you know, Kellen Moore's overratedness as a coach and Mike McCarthy kind of failing to put a stamp on what he wanted that team's offensive identity to be. I, I agree with those points. Those are valid points. Um, and like I said, just you can you can go into an overview if you want uh, briefly of the games. I know everybody, you know, obviously everybody talking about the Buffalo Bills and Mahomes um, and Kansas City advancing and winning. 
uh, that was awesome. That was an awesome game to watch. But if you if you can go in depth into those games and what you thought, uh, the Kansas City game and the Rams game, for, like for me personally, really quickly, uh, I thought the la- looking dating back with as far, as far as the Rams and Buccaneers dating back to the last couple times that these teams have played, the Rams clearly were the better team to me. Uh, they were able to have their way and uh, physically up front, and it prevailed. Their their, their defensive line prevailed. Uh, and Matthew Stafford, you could really see on, especially on that last drive, you can see the elevation and the the boost that he gives them that Jared Goff just lacked and just couldn't do. Uh, you can see the quarterback talent uh, and the separation between the two uh, with Stafford. So I wasn't surprised, not hugely surprised by the Rams. They almost gave it away, but they won. Uh, and then the Kansas City Bills game instant classic i i wouldn't mind taking another one of those uh like i, I wouldn't mind a best out of three series between these teams like that the games were that good uh i think buffalo down the stretch defensively had a lot of miscues and i found it a bit unacceptable that their their head coach sean mcdermott is a hit he's a defensive mastermind and leslie frazier who looks to be one of the more uh sexier uh defensive you know defensive minds in football and could be a potential head coach i feel like they had a major met uh meltdown uh in the last really two minutes of the of, of playing defense uh versus kansas city yeah both points both points are important i want to really delve into those as i state my opinion on both games um i had the rams kind of beating the bucks off rip early in the week and it really had to yeah. do with their defensive line being able to kind of round in a form in the postseason, really starting to set the tone in a wild card game against Arizona. And we knew kind of the injuries that the Buccaneers are going to have within their offensive line play coming into the game, and they manifested for three quarters. Worse wasn't out there, and it basically felt like the edge was the Rams to have, as well as we know what the dominance Aaron Donald brings to the table up the middle. Now, something that really shocked me was, the Rams' ability to run the ball effectively enough against Tampa. They were able to get two to three positive yards on a consistent basis, and their offensive line for a second consecutive playoff game held up against a pretty solid defensive pass rushing front. Stafford had a ton of time, and a knock on Stafford this season has been he's at his best when he has time to throw the football, and he's able to quickly go through his reads and accurately be able to deliver the ball to his receivers. When the pressure kind of comes to him and the pocket collapses, he gets a little erratic with his decision-making, his accuracy is wayward, and that's when you invite the four pick six games that I think he had this season. So their offensive line had up very well, and they did really almost give the game away, man, because of the turnovers. But Stafford has always shown throughout his career, when it's winning time, he goes to guys he trusts. Detroit, it was, I'm going to go to Calvin. And this year with the Rams, I'm going to go to Cooper Cup. It's just a shame that Tampa Bay, kind of their biggest knock has been, even when Brady has come to this team, they've historically been very undisciplined for the past two decades. And in a blitzing scheme that was schemed up properly, you would think Winfield Jr. as the last line of defense would pay homage to the greatness of Cooper Cup and not let him get by him at the top of his route. That happened. And that's all she wrote there. With the Bills Chiefs, Honestly, I felt it really came down to could Buffalo stop Mahomes, and they didn't. And the worst thing about it is we probably all thought deep down inside when Allen had that look-like game-winning drive with 13 seconds left, it was over. Yeah. But especially when you get the ball at the 25-yard line, 
But Mahomes is able to get in the field goal range in two plays. They kick the field goal. They get the ball to start overtime. And then we kind of knew whoever got the ball to start OT was going to win. And the Chiefs never looked back from there. I think with Buffalo moving forward, they have a solid team. I think they will be back mainly because I don't think anybody in their division has figured them out. We'll see what Miami does head coaching-wise. Um, as great of a defensive mind that Bill Belichick is, ever since Allen has evolved as a talent, he's had no answer for him. Yep. And the Jets are still rebuilding. So they're going to win their division. I think they match up very well against the likes of a Tennessee. Um, Cincinnati still got to figure out their whole interior line play. So the Bills will be back. But I think they need probably a bigger running back to take the load off of Josh Allen from having to run these QB powers on third and short situations. Yeah. Also to protect Allen from himself because you don't want him to have a career like Cam Newton where he's great, but because he keeps getting knocked around, he slowly but surely declines. And then another corner opposite of Trey White. Fabulous safeties, but when Trey White went out with the season-ending injury against the New Orleans Saints, Buffalo's defensive unit as a pass defense really was never the same. And they got by because their safeties were phenomenal and the comp that they were playing. But when you go against a guy like Mahomes or Burrow, for that matter, that challenged all avenues of the field through the air, you got to have your best personnel out there from start to finish, not just at the safety position, but at corner. And it's a deep corner class coming up. So if I'm the Bills, picking up a second corner to go with Trey White would help, allowing Levi Wallace and the others to kind of move back down in the pecking order as depth personnel. But, you know, Mahomes is the truth, and I always felt like that was going to be the difference of the game. Bills really didn't have an answer, and it's a shame because that's when the whole overtime narrative came where it's they should have had a chance to get the ball too, but number one defense in all of football, 13 seconds left to make a stop. Exactly. And you didn't. Then you had overtime to redeem yourself, and you didn't. It's just unlucky to say the least because Josh Allen kind of showcased to the world he's a top three quarterback in the NFL his defense just couldn't live up to their own numerical statistical billing yeah I agree and last thing about that point as far as like defensive assignments and so forth I think if like we all we always are taught this in practically almost any sport defensively where you want to be able to take away what the opposing offense does best or their best players. So the mere fact that Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, obviously along with Patrick Mahomes, who's throwing the football, well, all three had a hand and 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 they were they were all three responsible for winning the football game offensively. It's just unacceptable. I feel like they like the Bills called the timeout before the second play. They still like who did you think Patrick Mahomes was going to throw the ball to? <laughs> Byron Pringle? Because like it, it just wasn't going to happen like that. And it, 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 this is my thing. You're right. I think the overtime rule. It is what it is. It's 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 put in that place, and it's it's that type of rule, and it's formatted because of obviously injury and decline of play as the game wears on. So if you're Buffalo, you got to find a way 13 seconds to, to to get a stop. And I felt like the first mistake that they made was was kicking the ball out of bounds, touching it back. Kick. I thought they should have kicked the ball to Byron Pringle because Tyreek Hill wasn't back there. Um and and tackle prime uh, Byron Pringle take off four or five seconds they they have a play maybe a play maybe yeah I mean maybe one solid play that they can get up they can draw up but 
I think, um, you know, there's some defensive lapses, but as you said, Josh Allen definitely proved himself. I know, I know some people have, uh, have had some Josh Allen slander and they may admit that he's really good, but I think this game, this playoff run really, because he played absolutely, he played perfect versus New England. And then this game versus Kansas City, I think it really put the rest to slander and he really showed that, okay, he's ready to take the next step. He just, you know, uh, Buffalo just got to put some more pieces around him as far as defensively. And like you said, a bigger back maybe. Um, and, you know, getting that, getting over that hump, which is Kansas City um, and AFC. But about 16 minutes in, uh, we can shift to the NFC, uh, the NFC and AFC championship games. And we can start with the AFC. Um, yeah, we can start with the AFC. Uh, this so I have Kansas City winning. Uh, I think the spread is like seven, seven and a half. I think that's a bit much. Um, I see this game. I, I'm not gonna say it's not gonna be. I'm not gonna say it's gonna be like last week's game versus Buffalo. But I see a similar. I see a similar outtake where I think, like I said, ultimately Kansas City will win. But I see it like a three or four point game. Really, um, I think ultimately. It's going to start with, obviously, Patrick Mahomes and the offense. The offense is going to be awesome. I think they're going to be able to score points and, you know, get up and down the field versus Kansas City. But I'm then I'm thinking about defensively for Kansas City. And, I, and I've, I've been pointing this out even early on in the year when Kansas City was having its defensive troubles and they were just giving up a lot of big plays. I was, I was telling my listeners and breaking down to my listeners, I'm like, Steve Spagnola is Kansas City's defensive coordinator. If you know anything about Spags, Spags like to run a lot of disguised coverages and a lot of disguised blitz packages. And as you can see, last week versus Gabriel Davis, at least half of his touchdowns came off of miscommunication and broken coverage. And uh, when you, and you can and you can see it like if you watch the film in the in the game, you can see the miscommunication and the breakdown in coverages with Kansas City's defense. I think the big, the major component is Tyron Matthew um, and his health. Uh, if he's not back there, it, it, it could turn into to, to what it was last week. But I think ultimately Kansas City will get timely stops. Uh, I think their defensive front will, will be able to effectively get some pressure on Joe Burrow where it gets them some timely stops. Uh, you know, nine sacks. I don't know how Cincinnati won that game, but to give up nine sacks offensively uh, is just crazy. Uh, and, and they by far have the worst offensive line unit remaining in the postseason. And one quick thing, this is the analogy that I made, uh, Kambui. I was like, you're usually, you're not supposed to win playoff games with a bad offensive line. It's almost the equivalent to a baseball team winning playoff series with a bad bullpen. You know, like you just don't win like that. So ultimately, I think this has been a great run for, for Cincinnati. They have a nice young core. Uh, I think Joe Burrow and this offense will be able to score points. But I think, like I said, I think Kansas City will score more. Uh, and I think Kansas City will get some timely stops uh, due to their their pressure that I think they will be able to, uh, you know, penetrate and dictate the pace of the game with Joe Burrow and that weak offensive line that Cincinnati has. Yeah, I feel like this AFC championship game is going to look a lot like last year's where mm. I like the Bills, the Bengals, they've made it, but they're a little bit premature, and I think their weaknesses on their roster will catch up to them. 
meaning I expect this game to probably be a double-digit victory for the Chiefs with them going away. And we all know the main reasons why. Their offensive and defensive line just aren't there yet. They're in the process of getting there. I think there's um, key increments within both aspects of the football field where they have potential. Trey Hendrickson on the D-line for the Bengals, a former Saint, has been phenomenal for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry Uncanjobi has been solid in run support. Um, Logan Wilson at linebacker is a young, underrated, up-and-coming solid player. And then on the offensive side, the Bengals' left side of their old line is quality. And Spain and Jonah Williams, they're solid guys. It's just the right side is so weak need that it just doesn't present a lot of time for Burrow to make plays. And the way they scheme things up offensively, Cincinnati's a team where they have a lot of route concepts at the intermediate and downfield parts of the field, meaning they take a lot of time to develop, which means Burrow at times has to hang in the pocket a little bit longer for guys to break open at the top of the rise before he's comfortable releasing the ball on the throw. So I just feel like, what people are really sleeping on. And I think a lot of it has to do with guys really want Cincinnati to be Kansas City because Kansas City's not in now in terms of liking them anymore. They're starting to become a juggernaut. Right. That offensive line for the Bengals gave up nine sacks last week. And Kansas City's off defensive line isn't Tennessee caliber, but it has all pros in Chris Jones, has one of the most renowned playoff sack masters in Frank Clark. And Melvin Ingram has been a revelation for them as another outside pass rusher on the edge. Absolutely. KC could have had five sacks against Buffalo, but Josh Allen is, is such a mobile freak in nature that he was able to elude the rush and run for first downs, elude the rush to keep plays alive and make third down completions. Burrow is elusive, but he doesn't have the foot speed of Josh Allen. He doesn't have the physique of Josh Allen where when he gets hit, he can bounce off and still make plays. Right. If you get to him, he will go down. So I think Cincinnati's best chance may be to run the football because Buffalo has success running the ball to stay balanced, to protect Josh, because I think they'll do so to protect Burrow and to protect their defense because the other faction of Cincinnati on the defensive side is you can run on them and you can throw on them. And their pass first just isn't the same since Henderson has been out with the shoulder injury and Uncle Joby didn't play at all last week against Tennessee. So I think this is a great match for the Chiefs. I get it. They played late in the year um, in 2021, and the Bengals won that game to kind of be able to win their division. But in that game, KC was up double digits early. And if that happens in the playoffs, I don't think Cincinnati's going to be able to come back. So it's been a great one for the Bengals. But let's be real. The main reason why they are here is because Ryan Tannehill wet the bet. I mean, right. usually when you sack a quarterback nine times, you expect your offense to be able to reward your great defensive play with possessions that result in the points. He threw three picks. Tannehill threw a pick to start the game, threw a pick to basically end the Titans season, and that's all she wrote. So I don't expect Mahomes to give – Cincinnati three gifts and I expect Kansas City to take advantage of all offensive opportunities that they have I don't think this game is going to be as close and I see Kansas City kind of getting back to the Super Bowl once again just from a matchup standpoint in the trenches you want to be able to put pressure on a guy like Pat and you want to be able to protect a guy like Burrow because he's talented if you can't do both of those things against Kansas City who's an opportunistic defense and an explosive offense you're setting yourself up for failure yeah, agreed. Um, I think I often think, you know, with Cincinnati <clears throat> from, you know, I think they had like a top four pick last year and they've made some tremendous strides. Uh, obviously, some teams in their division underachieve, whether that was due to injury or so forth or COVID, you know, but Kansas City, t- I mean, but Cincinnati took advantage of it. 
Uh, and they ultimately got to the playoffs. They had that they won their first playoff victory in 31 years. They got their first ever road playoff victory ever. Um, so I think they've made some tremendous steps. I think this season can be can be can you know you can take this as the next step and as something like a building block. But I think, as you said, in the trenches, um, I think Kansas City has better balance. Now, you, you, we talk about the, you know, Cincinnati's pass protection. And obviously, Kansas I mean, Cincinnati, a lot of what they do offensively and what makes them so explosive is they're down the field, big plays. Uh, I think they led the league in big plays this year offensively. Uh, I think Joe Burrow had the most deep touchdown passes. And I think, uh, obviously, Jamar Chase had the most deep touchdown receiving catches. So, like, you get it. And in order for those routes and those – in those in those passing patterns to really open up, you gotta have protection up front. And as you stated, Josh Allen a couple times just made just just this just, just he did wizardry, uh, just getting out of pressure and evading sacks. Uh, Burrow is elusive, but he isn't Josh Allen elusive. He doesn't have that same a uh, physical or physical makeup, um, or the same physicality that Josh have that he where he can just bounce off of defensive ends and linebackers. But I think, like you said, Kansas City, they were up double digits. If they get up double digits in this game, the game is over. Uh, and we, I think that's where people lose the context at from last week. Like, it was a good, it was a, you know, obviously it's a good win for Kansas City. I mean, for, for Cincinnati. We feel good for Cincinnati. But that was more bad Tennessee and Ryan Tannehill showing his true colors uh, as far as, in the big moment where Tannehill had three crucial turnovers. Uh, obviously, one of those turnovers ended their season effectively. And you just don't see that happening with Mahomes, especially Mahomes right now. It's hot. He's clicking. Uh, they, Kansas City looks bound, uh, you know, further than this. I think they're going to win, but they look bound to whoever they play out, in, you know, versus the NFC. Be careful because Kansas City is hot and they're clicking at the right time. Now, tell me this. How do you feel about Tyron Matthew being in the secondary or not being able to play? Uh, if he's missing, how can Cincinnati offensively in the passing game exploit that missing proponent of Kansas City's secondary and Tyron Matthew if he's not available? Well, if Tyron's not available, it gives Cincinnati a shot, but it kind of goes back to what we talked about early on. Cincinnati has the office of pass concepts to exploit a team like Kansas City not having their best free safety back there. He's the final protector, the last man standing to prevent some of those shot plays from going down to the field. But for those shot plays to happen, you got to have time. And look, Spags, like you said, is famous for disguising coverages and his nuanced coverage game plans. I think he's going to look at that bangle tape and see what Tennessee was able to do productively, which is have all their best rushers be on the right side of the Cincinnati offensive line and let them <laughs> wreak havoc. And that caused terror for Burrow. And so the kind of the game plan I expect the Chiefs to have. And Tennessee had it for a little bit too. And I got to give Zach credit by being able to move him around. They're going to, anytime Jamar Chase lines out as an X receiver and he's running some type of route pattern beyond five yards, they're going to bracket cover. They're not going to, you know, let him do his damage one-on-one -on -one like they did 
2021 to end the year. And so that's going to open up opportunities for T. Higgins and Tyler Board, who are more than enough, in my opinion, to make plays if given the chance. But like I stated before, I think just people don't understand Cincinnati's offensive line is so bad. It is. And early on, early on in a year, they look decent, you know, so it, it kind of makes you forget it a little bit. But they kind of, they obviously got exposed against Tennessee. And I don't really see that going anywhere anytime soon. So I feel like Cincinnati's best chance offensively, sadly enough, may may have to be shortening the passing game and elongating the game. Do they have the offense to keep up with Kansas City? Yes, but I think they may need to take kind of the game plan they sort of took later on in the game when they beat Kansas City where they went on that long drive and they made sure not enough time was available for Mahomes to kind of get back on the field and pull out a victory. So they're going to ball control. They're going to have to run the football, bubble screens, in-breaking routes. They feature Uzama in the flat or over the middle in a five-yard route pattern. They're going to have to shorten the passing concepts run the ball more, elongate the game to protect not just their defense, but Burrow. Because Burrow hasn't done it so far, but his interception totals are so high this year because his offensive line is so bad. And so when he feels the rush, he either holds on to the ball too long and takes some unnecessary sacks. And I'm going to be honest, out of nine of those sacks, four of them were on Burrow. He should have got rid of the ball very quickly once he realized uh, he wasn't going to have enough time to make something happen in the air. Or if he's able to elude the pressure and throw it up for grabs, it does get picked because he forces the issue. So that's just the true fact of the matter. Yeah, agreed. Agreed upon. Um, Yeah, so I think we both agree Kansas City wins this game. You say comfortably. I think it'll be pretty close. Uh, I think, like I said, I think Cincinnati, they'll be able to move the ball. But ultimately, the offensive line of Cincinnati will break down. And that will, uh, you know, that will cause havoc for Joe Burrow and his time in the pocket. Now, we can shift gears to the NFC uh, between the Rams and uh, and 49ers. Uh, my, my listeners know I both these, – these are probably my two favorite coaches in football, uh, Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan. Uh, obviously, they're good friends. Um, San Francisco, I mean <laughs> – I think they're like nine and two in their last 11 games. They're obviously they're, they're probably uh, next is Kansas city, the hottest team in football. They have been playing playoff games since uh, essentially since the beginning of December, because every game has been that type of magnitude for them. Um, And last week they had, they have two great road wins versus two really dynamic offenses. And here they go again, they're playing the Rams where they've had a lot of success versus the Rams over the past couple of years, where they've won six straight. Um, I look at the Rams side, you know, it's been, they started off the season really hot. The first seven, eight weeks, they look really good. Uh, but then the middle of the season, Stafford and the turnover started to happen. Um, some new acquisitions. Now, I feel like these last couple of weeks, Going into the postseason after the last couple of weeks versus Arizona and now Tampa Bay, they seem like they're hitting their stride. Their defensive line, it's living up to its billing. Von Miller, uh, you know, he had a couple flashback moments last week. And then OBJ. I think I, I love the renaissance uh, that Odell Beckham is on. I think he's right now throughout the postseason, he's the highest graded uh, receiver by PFF. So I don't think that's no surprise. And then obviously we know about the greatness of Cooper Cup, and I think he's probably the offensive player of the year. And 
just looking at this 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 matchup, tell me, give me the keys to victory for both teams. Um, you can start with the forty. We can start. We can start with the forty nine. How about you go ahead? My bad. I was muted a little bit. Well, the key for the Niners, it's simple. Control the line of scrimmage. They've done it so far through their first two playoff games. This is why they're here. This is why they're one went away from going to their second Super Bowl in three seasons. They've been able to control the line of scrimmage, allowing Elijah Mitchell to get off and run for close to near 100 yards rushing. They've been able to control the line of scrimmage to allow Debo Samuels to be the Swiss Army knife. He is out of the backfield and in the backfield. And then we know what Nick Bosa is as a presence. He, ever since he's been on the Niners squad, opens up everything else for everybody on that D-line. So when he plays well, Armstead gets to the quarterback. And then you got Samson Ebucom, the former Ram. So when they're able to control the line of scrimmage with their front seven on, on defense and their offensive line to run the football very well, they're a tough out. And for the Rams, on the other end, it's simple. Their front lines need to control the line of scrimmage too. Now, you could say, well... Kambui, like, that's for any football team ever at <laughs> the pro level. If they control the line of scrimmage, they'll win. But these guys have really relied on the line of scrimmage to kind of excel in the postseason. For the Rams, they were able to set the tone against Arizona because Kyler Murray was running for his life. Von Miller and Aaron Donald set the tone on the edge and in the interior, terrorizing any aspect of an Arizona passing game. For three quarters, Tom Brady looked like a shell of himself because the Rams' defensive front did damage. And when the defensive line lost steam, it was the offensive line that held up in the blitz package late in the game against Tampa for Stafford to hit Cooper Cup down the field for scores. And so the Rams' offensive line has did an incredible 360 because late in the year they sucked. And I played a large part in why they struggled to run the football at times and Stafford was under duress making inaccurate passes and very poor decisions. So if they're able to control the line of scrimmage on that end like they've been doing and terrorize Garoppolo, withstand the rushing ability of the Niners, and give Stafford time, they should be able to win this game because I have the Rams. And what the Niners have been able to escape with is their secondary is very porous. They're starting Emmanuel Mosey, who's not what he used to be, a couple of rookie corners on the back end, um, Josh Norman, who seems like he's been in the league four years too long. Yeah. And they have safeties that are very aggressive and very talented in run support, but they're not the greatest when it comes to playing the ball in the air. So if Stafford has the time, is able to go through his progressions and utilize his weapons. This is also a game that can get out of hand. But here's the thing that you also got to realize. Divisional rivals are always tough, and they're even tougher in the playoffs because you know – the personnel on the opposite side that you're playing against, yep. you know, coaching tendencies, you know what guys like and like and don't like to do. And the Rams, it's psychological warfare at this point. They've lost six times in a row to the Niners. They lost to a Niners team last year that was injury riddled. Niners swept them. The year prior when the Niners went to the Super Bowl, they kind of set the tone to the whole league by sweeping the Rams, letting everybody know San Francisco football is back. And then this year, with the playoffs on the line, and it looked like the Rams are going to cruise in and get the two-seed, Niners come back, wreck all that for them, and now they crash the playoff party. Because if the Niners are in the postseason, maybe we talk about Green Bay making it to the NFC title game. So uh, it's psychological warfare at this point. But for the Rams, it's simple. If they're able to showcase dominance and control in the line of scrimmage, they'll be fine. And they'll be having the chance to play a Super Bowl on their home field two Sundays from now. Agreed. Uh, I'm picking the Rams as well. 
Uh, I, like, I, like I said, I'm big on both of these teams. Uh, people know I'm big on both of these teams. I'm big on both of these coaches. Uh, with the Niners, you know what I noticed about the Niners? Um, even last week's game, I was I, as I was watching the game, I was thinking to myself, I was like, the Niners, you would think with the 49ers being a quote-unquote warm-weather team, the snow, the frozen tundra, the like the 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 harsh temperatures would affect them. And I'm like, no, their play style very much feeds in, and it's more of an advantage. It's, it's more of an advantage than a disadvantage. Um, so like they're a warm weather team, but they're so physical and nasty. Um, basically at most at most levels of their team, and you look at their best players, it starts with them. Uh Debo Samuel. Uh, physical runner, physical route runner, uh, just uh, all around, just talented, great football player. Trent Williams, he's we know we we know Trent Williams. He's mountain man. He's he he's really good. He's so physical. Actually, had the highest PFF grade ever. Um, so he's having one of the more uh, dominant seasons as a, as a as a tackle that we're ever seeing. And then you mentioned Bosa, uh, Fred Warner, even George Kittle. All of their best players fit the identity of what they want to do. They fit the identity of what they want to do and how they play football. And that's that's it starts with their physicality. And I think to explain the six-game winning streak that they're on versus the Rams, the Rams are very physical too. They're very they're a very physical team as well. But I think with Sean McVay, they also have a little bit of finesse. And I think that's where the, the that's where the 49ers have taken advantage of. They have taken advantage of the Rams having a little finesse in their game, especially offensively. And then that's where that's where San Francisco just punches them in the mouth. Now, I think you make a good point. Uh, if the Rams are able, especially with their offensive line and their defensive line, but if they're able to run the ball effectively with a new a, a new form two-headed monster that they now have and Sony Michelle and Cam Akers coming back, even though he struggled last week with the fumbles, um, just got to clean that up. But with that two-headed monster, the offensive line, and then we know what they have in the passing game, I think the Rams should win this game. Um, now with the Niners, they got to be able to run the football. Uh, you got to be able to run the football, and you can't ask too much of Jimmy Garoppolo. You can't ask too much of him. I think last week uh, he didn't have like the gaudy, fancy numbers, but he made some he made some big time throws. Like we can say we won about Jimmy G, and this may be his last year as a 49er, but boy, he is calm, cool, and, and just even toned, even killed under pressure. Or, or, or like he's just cool, and he made some big time throws um, on some third downs. He you know he got some turnovers, but I think ultimately it's going to come down to line of scrimmage and quarterback play. I, I you know Matthew Stafford. I think a lot of people coming into the postseason had their had their concerns, especially how the way he ended the season. Where I think it was a game like it was game it was a game versus Minnesota. I think it was a game versus Baltimore. Where the Rams were clearly better than those teams, and those clean and those teams were somewhat decimated by injury and COVID, but Stafford had some big time crucial head scratching turnovers that made those games closer than what they were. And like I said, 
the Rams were better than those teams, so they were able to overcome that. And that was what people worry about going into the postseason. Is Matthew Stafford going to turn over the football? And if he does turn over the football, are the Rams going to be able to good? Are they going to be able to be good enough to overcome that versus the the NFL's elite? And you know, didn't didn't have to do much versus Arizona, but then Tampa Bay. The the mere fact that I, you got to get the credit of the Rams offensive line, you got to get you got to give them credit. But I think the mere fact that he stood in that pocket and versus that front four, I think said a lot. And he had a fairly productive game. Um, I think that's what it comes down to. I think Stafford's going to make a couple more plays than Jimmy Garoppolo. Um, dynamic arm. Like I said, I love what they have in the past game. Vance Jefferson, even he's become a reliable. Uh, deep threat, third option for the Rams. So I'm taking the Rams to win this game. I think they should they should be hosting the Super Bowl. Um, but the boy, the 49ers, they're a tough out. The division, they're, they're a tough out. Um, and, and they just have the, the 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 physical makeup. Now, tell me this about this game because I think we have an interesting coaching matchup. And I think Sean McVay earlier this week was asked, "Hey, um." Is Kyle Shanahan in your head? And he replied simply, no. Uh, I like both of these coaches. I think McVay is, uh, I think McVay overall is a better coach, but the head-to-head matchup, you know, Kyle has the upper hand. Uh, for McVay and the Rams to get over this hump, what does what like what does McVay and his Rams schematically have to do on offense or defense, but more so offensively, because the Rams offense it had a dry that Monday night game. They came out slow. They looked sluggish, and then the last game of the season, they started off really hot, but then second half they just took a dip. What skim? What do the? What does McVay and the Rams schematically have to do to like properly execute and play a full game of good football? Honestly, the answer that I'm going to have might shock you a little bit, but I'm going to say it. Um, I don't really think anything. I think at this okay. point, you just have to trust your players are going to make plays. Um, and I thought for a half against the Niners, the Rams came out locked in, focused, ready to play football, and it showed 17 nothing Because over time, from a roster standpoint, they're superior than San Francisco. They San are. Francisco has elements within their team that shine brighter. Um, the defensive line play large part because Abosa opens it up for his resilient pass rushing counterparts. Um, they have a staple of running backs and a commitment to running the football. So that helps them as well. But there's two things you really can't hide in playoff football. You can't hide poor quarterback play and you can't hide an offensive line. Like you either have it or you don't. Now, if you don't have a pass rushing D line, you can blitz. If you don't have the receivers, you can scheme cats up. And if your quarterback is good enough, he can find ways to throw guys open in tight coverage. But if you don't trust your QB and if your old line can't hold up, you're kind of behind the eight ball come playoff time. And it was always show. Um, I think the best thing that McVay did uh, moving forward really in this playoff game against the Cardinals, they, he went back to what made Sean McVay special. The establishment of the running game. Absolutely. The misdirection, the sticking with your identity as a physical football team. And I think that kind of got everybody back into good graces with him. They made Stafford a lot more comfortable. That way, when they went against Tampa, those elements were still there. It allows Stafford to get more of in a comfortable groove. The offensive line felt a little bit good at a, good with themselves, able to run block very well. 
Now you're more confident in pass blocking situations. And now Stafford has a clean pocket. He has time making his reads, all of that. I just feel like at times the Rams sometimes get in their own head. And I think there's only so much your coach can do. He can scheme it up the best way that he can. But if you have the personnel and the guys on the field that can do the job, they've got to go out and do it. And I think that's really what's going to come down against the Niners. I think the Niners, if anything, have more things that they got to schematically prepare for than the Rams. And the most important thing for the Niners is how are they going to be able to establish some level of a consistent pass game with Garoppolo? He's hampered and hindered. Honestly, he shouldn't be out there playing football. Now, he had that Herculean effort last um, year to end the year against the Rams that got them here. But you could tell he was compromised against Green Bay. He did have some catchable passes that weren't caught, but he was compromised in that game and they were able to survive because Green Bay had better the running game and Rodgers just didn't have the time to go through his reads against that mighty pass for us. So how are they going to be able to scheme up ways to where he's more of a consistent passing factor? Because you can only run the ball so much because I know what the Rams are going to do. Stack the box and dare Garoppolo to make those reads against um, their corners and their secondaries. And the Rams secondary has been held to skills and inconsistent all year. But I think they take their chances with Garoppolo. Just play a little bit more tighter coverage and dare him to make those contested throws. And so that's the guy that I think need, needs to be worried about in the context of how can they schematically make his job easier. For the Rams, the roster is what it is. They've shown so far in the playoffs that they have the talent to set the tone and come out with victories. They just got to lock in against the Niners and do what they need to do to come out on top. Agreed. And that was you you answered my my next question. What was gonna be like, okay, schematically for Jimmy Garoppolo, what does success look like for him? Um, and you you summed it up. And he is compromised. And and I will take my chances. I'm looking at both secondaries. Like you said, the Rams overall are superior. Um, uh, and that's why it's, it's that's why, at least for like the last couple of years, actually, not 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 necessarily like the 49ers Super Bowl year, but the last two years, it's just been surprising that for some reason the Rams can't seem to get over this 49ers hump because you look at you look up and down the roster the Rams 22 is better than the Niners 22 so you just you just ask yourself and you wonder why but and, and I think one of those games was won by Nick Mullins if I'm not correct but if I'm not mistaken but Garoppolo I was going to say that and you answered it schematically what does that look like for him because I think then I think the Rams defensively on the secondary, they're going to force him to make some tight coverage throws. And he made some big boy throws last week um, that some of them weren't draw. I mean, some of them weren't caught, but he made some big boy throws. Um, I'm not from, from a week to week basis. I'm just not so sold on Jimmy Garoppolo and, you know, in the red zone, there was some, there was a lot of times where he would drop back and he would have a, a pretty clean pocket and he would throw some very questionable passes and you would ask yourself just why did you make that read or why is that ball in the air and floating so long so i i, I definitely agree with you with that jimmy garoppolo point because that was definitely gonna be my next question what does success look like for him and how can kyle shanahan trust him with putting the ball in his hands and making some crucial plays down the stretch versus the Rams. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are all important questions. And, you know, with Garoppolo, especially in that Green Bay game, you could tell the hand injury that he has is affecting him, especially on those throws to the boundary, the zip 
isn't there, yeah. the precision that you need when you make those throws to the boundary just wasn't there. And if Green Bay's corners, most importantly Stokes, plays the ball, that's a pick six, talking about a different conversation. And I think the worst thing you could have with a quarterback like Garoppolo is he's already compromised when healthy because he's inconsistent as a passer, he's inconsistent as a decision maker. The worst thing that can be compiled to his healthy state is his now injured state. So healthy Garoppolo compromised as a decision maker and as a progressor when it comes to going through his progressions as a passer. Now with a hand on his throwing arm that he utilizes on a daily basis, that's kind of substantially limited as well. It's a tough ball game. And so the Niners are going to have to find a way to maximize the opportunities he does throw the football, but also incorporate the run to where when he does have to throw, it's starting manageable, where route concepts such as in-breaking routes are something that he can lean on. Because at this point, he's much more of a safer bet at the middle of the field. He's not a safer bet on the boundary. So to have consistent, manageable, over-the-middle passing concepts, you got to be in third and manageable. The Niners are going to have to lean on that as well. And, you know, what's going to probably happen, unfortunately, if they lose, and it's because of Jimmy, I think Niners fans are going to start thinking in the offseason, hmm, maybe if Trey Lance was out there, would there be a different field? And, yeah, Lance is young, and, yeah, you're going to have to change your whole offensive concept, but what Trey is over Jimmy, dynamic athlete, yep. stronger arm, and yep. a lot more healthier. And so that provides an offensive dynamic that the team hasn't been able to see before, and it opens it up. And so this is another sidebar on Shanahan. This may open a whole new can of worms that maybe you want to jump into as well. I think Shanahan, what has got him this far, but what has hurt him has been his ego. The Atlanta game, when the Falcons made the Super Bowl yeah. and blew the 28-3 lead against the Patriots, he built all of his equity to get a job as a head coach because he led Matt Ryan to his only MVP campaign of his career. So he rolled the Matt Ryan train when balance offensive identity probably was the way to go to close out New England. When they played Kansas City the first time in the Super Bowl, well, the only time in the Super Bowl, rather, right. they were up 20 to 10. You would expect them to ride a balance oriented offensive identity home. It's like, nah, I wasted all this cachet to get Jimmy G over here. I'm going to show everybody why Jimmy G is the guy and how I molded him into a Super Bowl caliber MVP quarterback. It didn't happen that way. And so his loyalty, and not just him, the team's loyalty, that they can do it with Jimmy, had maybe has some misled thought process to where this game that they're going to play seems a lot more possible if things go their way. But a lot of things really have to go their way for them to have a chance with Jimmy G at quarterback. And that's because he's just not that guy. And a lot of that has to do with Shanahan hitching his wagon to Jimmy G because he invested a lot of capital in getting him here. He's why the Niners have a Super Bowl chance. They've had a renaissance since the post-Kaepernick days. And he's going to live and down that sport. And I, his fan base might not charge him for it now, but down the line, expect some level of resentment for sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, and you you mentioned it. I, I think uh, dating back to what I said in the draft with the Niners making this move, because uh, they moved heaven and earth uh, to get Trey Lance, my whole thing was I think Kyle Shanahan had, had like uh, some type of revelation. And I think him, especially in that Super Bowl, with uh, versus Kansas City, 
And Mahomes being down 10 points, and then Mahomes was able to flip the switch with his dynamic playmaking, utilizing his legs and his arm. I think he had a revelation. And I think he was like, I usually have guys like Matt Schaub, Kirk Cousins, Matt Ryan, Jimmy Garoppolo, guys that fit that pocket passer, West Coast type of feel. And I think he wanted a guy where the play call doesn't have to always be perfect. And I think that's the same thing with, with I think that's the same thing that McVay was going through with Jared Goff. Like, I have to literally dial up every time the perfect play in order for something positive to happen. And I think Shanahan reached a point where he was like, hey, I got I got I get this kid, Trey Lance. Uh he can he can make something out of nothing. With his with his playmaking ability and his talents, and it's just something that Jimmy Garoppolo can't do. It, you know, it's <laughs> simple as that. It was it's it's just something simple as as that where Garoppolo can't do that. He doesn't have the capability, and Trey Lance does. Um, so I think that is a whole other can of worms to open up. Uh, I think it, it'll be very interesting to see. You know, if the Niners are able to pull off this game and and win another NFC Championship, two of them in three years. It's going to be very curious to see what they do because it's like, okay, this guy, Jimmy Garoppolo, when healthy, he's gotten you to two Super Bowls in three years. And this past year, you reached on this kid. or well, not reached, but you, you moved all the way up from 12 and you gave up a boatload of your future for this kid, Trey Lance. So it'll be really interesting to see. Like I said, I think, uh, you know, my listeners know what I said about Kyle. I think he had a revelation. Uh, and I think you make a great point about his ego. I think sometimes Kyle let his ego get in the way of him being, you know, he's this uh, he's this great offensive mind and this great offensive guru. And his philosophy is running the ball first and being run heavy and run dominant. But then he gets in this, you know, these big games and all he has to do is stick to his philosophy. But as you said, especially with Garoppolo, he he brought Garoppolo in. I think he was a, he was he was really high on Garoppolo, and he saw the Super Bowl as a chance. Like, hey, this is what we do, this is what I done with Garoppolo. I think you make a great point about that. Um, and it seems like we both have the Rams winning this game. Uh, so we look like me and me and Kambui agree that it's going to be a Rams Chiefs Super Bowl. Uh, something that a lot of people were you know were wishing for back in 2018. Now I feel kind of better because. You know, we don't got to see Jared Goff, but um, <laughs> no, but uh, uh, this I think this is a good segue. We can move on to uh, lastly, because I don't want to hold you any longer, but I know you're a Saints fan. I know you you follow the Saints very heavily. Um, and there's there was some breaking news <clears throat> earlier this week uh, with Sean Payton stepping down and, you know, quote unquote, retiring from coaching it seems like he has uh he's gonna go into few you know other endeavors such as broadcasting with fox maybe that's for a year or two who knows there's a lot of speculation but give me your take on the saints um in their future and how you know the sean the sean payton era went i know right now they're set they're in salary cap hell 74 it looks like a projected 74 million dollars over the cap so you just give me your take on Sean Payton, on the Sean Payton era, and his legacy as a coach, um, and the Saints' future. 
Yeah, man. Uh, I've been having this verbal spat with Saints fans back and forth online the past few days. I've kind of let it go today. Uh, <laughs> time to move on. At this point, it is what it is. But me and my dad, we've kind of both agreed. You know, Sean Payton should have been fired three years ago. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because he has a very powerful voice in the organization when it comes to who he wants to draft, who he wants to pay, and who he wants to keep. GM Mickey Loomis and owner Gail Benson, all they do is sign the checks. Well, Gail, you know, signs off on the check that's signed by Mickey Loomis. But the point is, right. they approve whatever Sean puts out there. Right. And what Sean has put out there the past three years has been stay with Drew Brees until he physically can't play anymore. And even in that context, it broke my heart severely when the game was over against Tampa and they lost. Come to find out, Drew's out there playing with like 12 broken ribs. I'm like, why is he out there when Jameis Winston is perfectly healthy on the sidelines? I'm just saying. Like, if Jameis Winston played that game against Tampa, we're in the NFC Championship game, and this is a whole different conversation. So he had loyalty to Drew. He had loyalty to Taysom Hill, continuously telling whoever would listen, Taysom Hill could be the next Steve Young. He could be the next franchise quarterback for the Saints. When everybody who's not even in the meeting rooms weekly as you prepare for games can realize Taysom is not an NFL quarterback. He's the gadget player at best who got an extension this past season before Sean was like, I'm done. He hooked up his guy with a money pay that people can say, well, it's cap friendly because it can be voided. But I'm like, that contract should have never been given out anyway. So there's that. And then from a schematic standpoint as a head coach, a lot of people kept saying when the year was over, when we were 9-8, and eight, Sean should be coached the year because look at what he went through. 55 players, different players played this year, COVID, yada, 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 injuries. I'm going to keep it a stack. All right. First of all, Sean Payton looked like he quit on the team once Jameis Winston got hurt and we lost to Tennessee. I think at that point against Tennessee, it looked like Sean was like, I'm good. I'm going to take the season at this point and start over with a high draft pick that might allow me to get what I want to fit within this team. But what happened was he missed the next, he missed the game late in the year because of COVID. Dennis Allen take over a week, Tampa shocked the world. And that Tampa win ignited, I think the pride, passion and intensity of the players on the roster to make one last playoff push that I honestly believe if the COVID outbreak didn't happen against Miami, we're in the playoffs. Like we went to the games. That's enough. But outbreak happened we weren't able to make it and so we're nine and eight and i think sean's looking at that like dang like we're nine and eight we're not gonna have a super high pick i won't really get to start over how i want to i'm out of here yeah but the problem i have with him saying he's out of here i don't have a problem with him leaving i know in the grand scheme of things he's not going to be retired forever he's going to take about two years off and in my opinion either take the cowboys and the Charger job, because I feel like Stanley's on a very short lease mm-hmm. where if the Chargers don't make it again with a talent like Herbert, he's out of there and you don't believe L.A. is looking across town and it's like Rams got their superstar coach in McVay, we can get Sean and bring out the best out of Herbert. So look out for that down the road, too. Don't have a problem for him looking out for himself in the future. But when I hear comments about he was super stressed and this year took a lot out of him, I'm like, you provided the stress, Sean by not drafting a receiver in the draft (laughs) last year, by not going out and getting a receiver in a free agency, by paying Taysom Hill, by making Taysom Hill believe he had a chance to win a starting job. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) By Pat, by taking an offensive lineman who honestly's best position is center 
he can't play center or guard correctly. You took him over Jordan Love. So you can have a foundational quarterback to build on in the future. You took a defensive lineman when in that draft, you could have took a receiver. So there was a lot of miscues that he made that's on him. And when I was having these conversations with the Saints fans, all they kept telling me was, Sean's done so much for this city. And I'm like, I'm not talking about Sean's <laughs> tenure as a whole. I'm talking about the last three seasons. Yeah. And Drew, in 2017, was done. The Minneapolis Miracle showcased that he was falling off. And at that moment, the Saints should have made the turn. But they kept him. We made it to the NFC Championship game. Got robbed by the refs. But the turning point should have been when they lost to the Vikings again. Yeah. And Drew was like, I'm out of here. Tom Brady was knocking on the door. Yep. Tom Brady was going to be a Saint. That was your opportunity, Sean, to cut ties from Drew, bring in Brady, and pursue that last ring that you're looking for. But his homie Drew hit him up. Drew saw ego swole. Saw Brady might take my job. I'm coming back. And Sean invited him in. All Sean had to do was say, no, we're moving on. And that held the team back. So his loyalty to Drew and Taysom, his inability to build an offense around those limited players to at least maximize what you have. And then this past year, not making any movement to improve, to improve a weak receiving core to coincide with Jameis Winston's ability. And then not coaching properly to the talent that you have is why you finished the year not in the playoffs. It's just unfortunate. And, you know, I get it. Saints fans don't want to face the music. So I'm glad that he's gone. I think it allows the team to advance forward. And want to touch base on the two things, the calorie issue, the cap calorie issue, and what I see this team being down the line. So yeah. salary cap-wise, they're in hell. We get that. But they were in hell last year, and they found a way to make it work. I think Mickey Loomis is going to do his economical gymnastics that he did last year. And we're going to be under the cap to where we can get – some receivers on the cheap because this receiving free agency class has some guys that I think will take one year deals to prove to the world that they have what it takes to get that multi-year contract. And two guys I'm thinking of, I can see Allen Robinson taking a friendly deal on the team. Um, DJ Chark coming off of an injury. So the Saints can get a guy that's better on their roster currently. That's not Michael Thomas and draft somebody else. And then automatically you got three new receivers allowing your fourth and fifth guys that were your starters last year to move back in a depth chart. Now you have receiving depth. So they can do that. Um, I think the two guys that I think might be casualties are you got to decide what you want to do with Michael Thomas. And you have to decide what you want to do with Cam Jordan. Cam yep. Jordan's 33. Yep. He came on late in the year, but in the grand scheme of things, if his performance against Tampa, Carolina, and Atlanta didn't happen, he would have finished the year with probably, what, three sacks? Yeah. That's disappointing. And he's a leader. He's an impactful player. He's been huge, a part of the Sean Payton era. But his his best years are probably behind him. Mm -hmm. And this is why the Saints probably went out of the way and drafted D-lineman depth. They have a pretty deep defensive line to where if they move on from Jordan, you can bring somebody in there that's younger, maybe draft somebody and go from there. And then you have to decide with Thomas – I feel like the friction with Thomas was, and nobody's going to say, but I believe it. He was beefing with Peyton because I think he understood what Peyton was catering towards offensively. And what he was catering towards was his loyalty to Drew and Taysom. But what that was doing with a guy like Thomas is, Thomas is like, yo, I'm out here sacrificing my body, playing for these quarterbacks that I clearly see are declining. And you're not making any moves to evolve from that position so you can get the best out of me. That's why he didn't come back this year when he looks out there and sees he's barely given Jameis enough rope to be a passer. And then when Jameis got hurt, taste him going to be my quarterback, I'm straight. I'm not coming back. So with Sean out of there, maybe the next coaching staff can come in and define who's going to be the QB of the future. And I think once he's comfortable with that, maybe Jameis may 
not James, maybe Michael comes back. But if Michael is still resistant, you can utilize what he's done so far in his career as a trade piece to move on. But what do I see the Saints being potentially next year? Really, if Tampa Bay doesn't bring back Brady, this division's wide open. I don't think Carolina and Atlanta are there yet because they have to figure out their defensively. Well, Carolina has to figure out the offensive line. I think their defense is fine. It's top five. And Atlanta has to figure out their defense overall and their offensive line because they haven't had a good offensive line in a few years. Now it comes down to Tampa and New Orleans. Both are going to have quarterback issues. Um, Tampa Bay might have receiving issues as well if Chris Godwin leaves and Gronkowski decides to retire. So the division is wide open to where the Saints won't fall off, honestly, if they do this right. And I feel like the best way they can do this right is they get probably either get Dennis Allen or get Byron Leftwich. I've heard they want to interview Byron Leftwich. I think yep. Byron Leftwich is going to take the interview because the whole situation that Leftwich has in Jacksonville currently is he was going to get the Jag job, but he wants Trent Baalke to be fired so his man Adrian Wilson can be the GM. Yep. Right now, Khan, the owner of the Jags, he's not going for it personally. And so that's kind of been the stalemate so far allowing Leftwich to kind of pursue other options. And so if they can get Leftwich in the building, and if Leftwich is able to settle to Loomis and Vincent, look, I've coached Jameis the year prior where he had the famous 30 for 30. But I know how to get the best out of him as a passer. It seems like with Sean, he's learned how to reel it in with the turnovers. If you let me come in and have Jameis be my guy and allow me to kind of pinpoint who I want on my offense, then we'll be right back. And that's something that you could sell that I think Gail and Mickey would take wholeheartedly. And if you can't get Byron, bringing Dennis Allen, what he was able to do with that team, because honestly, he's the coach of the year. His ability to get the best out of the defense last season to make that playoff push is why they finished with a respectable record. If you're able to elevate him to be the head coach, that's that's good. They just got to find a way to figure out the offense. And I think things that they need to do, decide what they're going to do with Jordan and Thomas. Are you going to restructure the deals? Are you going to trade them? But one thing they for sure need to do, you got to cut Taysom Hill. There's no service for him anymore. Sean Payton, his guy, isn't there anymore. So why is he still on the roster? They need to trade him ASAP, cut him, do whatever, because his, his purpose isn't there anymore. And he's kind of held the team back high key from evolving. Oh, man. Okay. So that was a lot. Um, Sean Payton first, right? And I think his first, his first, like, he got there in 2006, all the way from so from about from about 2006 to 2013. The Sean Payton era in New Orleans, I think, was very successful. Uh then the stuff with the Bounty Gate, obviously, and all that. I, but ultimately, I think those years were really good. Uh, you had a prime Drew. The offense was really explosive. Remember, remember those years was weird because the offense was really explosive, but then the defense was uh, hit or miss at times on uh, on, on any get any given year. Um, and then you shift after 2013, and they had this three year stretch where they go seven and nine, seven and nine, seven and nine. Uh, and once again, like I said, offensively, they they would be putting up a lot of points and they would be really potent and dominant. But defensively, their defense those years were ferocious. I remember. Um, and then 2017, basically to 2017 all the way to 2020, there were some gut-wrenching, just heartbreaking playoff losses. 
uh the you know obviously the the Minneapolis miracle I mean uh, you know the the obviously the Rams uh <laughs> NFC championship game we I think that it's highly controversial uh the wild card loss versus the Vikings again uh just just this time's in the wild card round and then last year Tampa Bay in the second round so I, I you know I thought I was very crit throughout those years and those playoff losses, I was very, very critical of Sean Payton and Drew Brees because uh, th- th- those were just – those games, like the 2017 game versus Minnesota at Minnesota, that was a defensive lapse. You can't let that happen. Uh, the conference, I know everybody talks about the pen- the pass interference call, but I asked myself, why, was, why were you throwing the ball in that situation? Because I still remember it vividly. Why were you throwing the ball in that situation? Uh, you did have your defense did have a chance to stop the Rams on the next possession from scoring, and then in overtime, your guy Drew Brees at home threw a game clinching interception. So it was just unacceptable. Uh, the wild card loss was the Vikings. I, you know, I, I just Drew Brees at that time. Now this is up to the point where physically you can tell Drew was shot. You could tell physically he was shot, and then that led to two more playoff losses, gut-wrenching close losses. So I thought overall, Sean Payne's a Hall of Fame coach, no doubt about it, right? 150-plus wins, uh, a Super Bowl. You know, he's he, you know he's gone deep into the postseason. But you're right. I think his loyalty to Drew Brees, um, it, it, it cost him. It killed him at the end because the mere fact that, okay, you could have – and you could have stuck with Drew – have a secession plan. They didn't have they didn't have a secession plan. And that's what that's what has you in a hole right now. You got Jameis Winston, you know, but you got him off the cheap. Uh and you, you did that last year. You, you but up until last year, there was no real secession plan in New Orleans. And then he had everybody believing, or not everybody, because he I, I wasn't believing in it. I didn't trust it at all. But you were right. He was selling everybody, all these all these reporters, all these sources. Hey, my guy Taysom Hill, next Steve Young. And I'm like, up until uh, up until like last year, we had never seen Taysom Hill throw the football. <laughs> and he was 30. <laughs> he was 30 years old. He was 30 years of years old. We had never seen him throw the football. And up until last year, where he had to actually play some games. We had never seen that. It, 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 it was. It was. It, I was like, I, I, I hope Sean Payton isn't serious. Like, I, I, he, he can't be serious. And then he paid him. So you're right. Uh, I think you, you, you hit. I mean, you hit every point. Um, and I, I totally get what you're saying. As a Saints fan, over the last three, four years, Sean Payton has been very underwhelming. Very underwhelming with the quarterback. Uh, with the quarterback play having, if we want to be honest, anemic offenses, and you have this really good defense. They have done a great job over the last couple of years to build a, dare I say, a championship caliber defense with, you know, being able to, you know, having great pass rushers, having a solid secondary, not happening to blitz, being able to play man coverage, man-to-man coverage, and don't got to play a lot of zone. They did a really good job, but even with the offensive line, I feel like you got you you drafted Ram uh, 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 Ramcheck, uh, you know Tar- Armstead. Like 
you have some really good pieces and then Kamara, but the the skill positions have just been a lingering gap for a long time in New Orleans. So I absolutely agree with you when you say Sean Payton has failed over the past couple of years, not, not his whole tender New Orleans, but if we're just strictly looking at from 2017 all the way to 2021, that three to four year gap, he has failed as far as from a personnel standpoint and just making some poor decisions with the money and the financial situation of the saints. So I totally agree with you. Um, I don't see where saints fans are getting this confused and, and, and maybe because, and this kind of hurt me too last year because, or, or over the past couple seasons, because I was rough on Drew Brees. Cause, cause I could tell that wasn't a Drew Brees. Everybody fell in love with. That was a Drew Brees that was clearly shot. He didn't have the same juice on the throws. You can tell, and you, it showed. It showed in a lot of numbers, regular numbers, advanced stats. And I feel the same thing with Sean. Like I feel like Saints fans get really defensive with those two because they're such like pillars of the community. But the mere fact is, hey, Drew can't play. Drew can't play. And, and we saw, and we saw that his last couple of years, we're like, this dude can't play. He sustained some some regular season injuries where you know Teddy Bridgewater had to come in a couple, you know, couple, you know, one time had a five had a really impressive five and zero stretch. So if Drew can't play, Drew can't play. He can't play anymore. He don't have the same zip. And, and, and if Sean Payton financially can't make the right decisions and personnel wise can't seem to draft a skill positions player or don't hit on these positions, then that's just what it is. So you're absolutely right. Uh, I think Sean Payton, there could have been a, a reasonable argument made that he should have been uh, dismissed a year or two earlier than what he did himself. And you, you can go ahead and take over the thought, you know, as far as New Orleans, because I know this is, this is, this is, this, you like, you, you cover them, you watch them heavily. So go ahead. Yeah, man. To um, all out. those points you made, it, all those points you made is facts. I mean, look, Drew, look, Drew and Sean are Hall of Famers. No one's taking that away from them. And I've done, I'm aware that this is a moment of celebration and I'm letting guys have their moment to kind of praise what they've represented and what they've done so far. But in its totality, the last three years, my expectations have been so high for this squad because we've been at the cusp of breaking through. And because I'm at the cups, cusp of breaking through, my reaction is a little bit different than, a, a, how do I put it, a Patriot fans reaction this year, where last year without Brady, they were competitive, but they didn't make the playoffs. This year with Mac Jones, they made the postseason and got killed, but they're, they're back. And so the Saints have been at the cusp for three years. And this year we were all thinking, okay, Drew's not there anymore. Now we have a quarterback with a more – wider passing net that can possibly get the best of our offense. But Sean does a little to nothing to supply the weaponry around Winston to get the best out of them. However, he did do that, though, for a wash to breeze the past three years. It just felt like a level of favoritism was going into this guy's decision-making, and it was affecting the aspect of the team. And so the reason why I don't think the Saints squad will fall off is they've done a very good job of hitting when it comes to drafting defensive players. 
Uh, Marcus Davenport can't stay on the field consistently to save his life. But when he's out there, he's, he's really a good. impactful player. Yeah. He's really good. Pete Warner, who they got from Ohio State, is the up-and-coming stud at the outside backer position. They took a flyer on Paulson Adebo when he didn't play last year because of COVID. Took him a while. He's been inconsistent, but the flashes are there. C.J. Garner-Johnson in the fourth round, a Swiss Army knife safety out of Florida. He's been an impactful entity on the defensive side. And I haven't even mentioned Marcus Williams, Marshawn Lattimore. They happened during that rebirth of Saints football where defense kind of set the tone for the squad. So they've made the moves defensively. I think they'll continue to do so. But now it's a sigh of relief because I feel a little bit more confident that Jeff Ireland, Mickey Loomis, and whoever that they bring to the table as the head coach next season will be able to make picks without a level of emotion and attachment to entities that just don't have it anymore. If you had attachment to guys that could still play, Sure, but no longer do I have to worry about, man, like, are the Saints going to, I don't know, not get a quarterback because Drew's still there? Are they not going to get uh, a position at need because they're catering to the belief that Taysom Hill can break through as a quarterback, so we need to get linemen? Now I can come and know it, okay, whoever's going to be the coach, they're going to decide off-rip the quarterbacks here or not. If they do decide Jameis Winston's the guy, then they're going to build a weaponry around Winston to make sure he succeeds. And now I can feel comfortable with that, knowing throughout our draft process, we're probably going to take more offensive players than defensive players because it's pretty clear our offense is why we didn't make the playoffs. And so now a level of balance can kind of manifest. So, you know, hey, Saints fans can believe what they want to believe. I know what I saw. And I just hope that now moving forward, this level of play in a new era of Saints football can provide really an elusive Super Bowl opportunity that we failed to kind of maintain in our graphs. It's going to be an important uh, offseason for the Saints. First of all, they got to hire the right guy. It's looking like it's going to be either Leftwich, Aaron Glenn, or Dennis Allen. And I don't think you can go wrong with Allen or Leftwich. They got to decide, are we comfortable enough with our defense to where our next pick at coach is an offensive guy who can bring about a new wave of offensive philosophy in Saints football or are we going to go the defensive mantra to maintain that culture and identity and then maybe Allen's going to bring in an OC that can bring also another blend of offense or maybe Allen is going to maintain Lombardi I honestly feel like look I was cool with Allen but once I saw left which is an opportunity give me left which because I think I don't want any remnants of offensive anything that has anything to do with Sean Payton. I don't, I don't want it. I need a guy that can come in and understand and realize this is a new brand of Saints football and we need to identify who's our quarterback. And we also need to maintain a relationship with Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara, get them in the room and make them understand. Look, we understand you've been underutilized since Sean Payton's been here the last three years in my offense. We're going to get the best out of you because we're going to have this type of quarterback we're going to have this type of an offensive scheme. We're going to be balanced, but we're going to take shots. We're going to make defenses defend all aspects of the field. We're going to bring a new brand of Saints offensive football back to the dome and make it popping like it was early last decade. So I'm ready for that, and I can't wait to stay tuned. Got you. Um, so, uh, like I said, I didn't want to hold you much, uh, hold you up any longer. Uh, definitely, definitely be sure to shout out your podcast or any, you know, endeavors that you may dive into. Uh, I, like I said, Campbell, you can come on anytime. Uh, I, I appreciate, uh, you coming on 
You always bring great, knowledgeable football or basketball insight. Uh, so definitely, I might even bring you on before the Super Bowl so we can talk about this potential matchup that we may have brewing. Uh, but our picks seems like Kansas City, Rams, uh, to both win their respective conferences and meet each other in the Super Bowl. Like I said, thank you once again, Cam Bowie, for coming on. Any last thoughts? My bad. Let me unmute again. Yeah. Um, always great to be on your platform, man. Always great to talk football with you. Uh, I'm really open to um, when the Super Bowl comes around, we do this again because we'll be able to go more in depth knowing which two teams will be in the big game. Uh, I'm actually going to be uploading my podcast tomorrow. I have a guest off script YouTuber, um, a good friend of mine. We develop a connect that's been solid. He um, creates content centered around the HBCU football landscape. Um, I'm going to bring him on to kind of talk HBCU football. I'm a lot of things going on at that avenue. So be on the lookout for that episode tomorrow. And since I work with PFF, I think what I'm going to try to do with independent Intel is bring on some PFF guys that I know. Um, got a couple of guests on the horizon as I kind of center my podcast focus around the NFL draft process. Yeah. I'm going to be a little bit invested in in-depth kind of seeing the prospects that are available and whatnot, not just for, you know, my fandom, my support for my team, but I, I want to kind of have a pulse on the high guys coming out and what prospects and scouts or really what scouts are looking at and certain things that they're looking out for prospects. So independent cell dropping a new episode tomorrow. Stay tuned on that. It's going to be a good one. Um, Gonna focus more on kind of the uh, NFL draft process as the season winds down, and also gotta tap back into the NBA. I haven't really been into the NBA like that recently because the playoff season in football is rationing up, but it's winding down. Uh, plenty of things I've really focused on there because you know basketball world is getting hot and heavy for sure, and that's something I want to dig back into and cover. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, to my listeners, uh, this is a Saturday. This will count as a Saturday episode. So. Like I said, uh, you know, Bumani, Kambui Bumani has his uh, his own podcast. You guys, I'm always, like I always do, I leave that uh, in the description. And it should be below, uh, depending on what DSP you're using to listen to this podcast. It should be in the description, either that's above or below. It'll be there. So you guys, like I say all, all the time, go check out his podcast. Go listen to his content. Really good, really thoughtful, as you can tell. Um, definitely the NBA season is right. It's, it's starting to, you know, pick up some heat, pick up some steam. So I, I can't wait to even talk about that with you. But like I said, this will count as a Saturday episode. You guys would be hearing this on Saturday before the games on Sunday. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed, uh, Kambui. You guys are, you guys kind of already knew where I was coming from with these perspectives and these takes, but hope you guys enjoyed this talk. Uh, I'll catch you guys after. Uh, yeah, next week. So, you know, without further ado, I'll let you guys go. Peace, deuces. Hope you guys enjoyed. Shout out to all the first time listeners. Shout out to all the regular listeners. Um, and yeah, enjoy your weekend.